So here we have a weird one. Filmed at Vasquez Rocks Natural Area Park. A place that'll show up many, many, many more times in future Star Trek works. Uh, first time we've ever been there. This also brought in Theodore Sturgeon, someone you may recognize as the guy who wrote Amok Time, although we'll talk about that in the future. And directed by Robert Sparr, who of course would never direct a show of episode or a show of Star Trek ever again. One of the interesting things is Mr. Sparr mentioned that one of the biggest problems he had was he just kept clashing with the egos of the main characters, most notably uh, the big three, but also the big two, Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner. Um, just keep that in the back of your mind over the next few weeks. This was rewritten, well, okay, what actually happened was uh, there were some notes to rewrite this by Mr. Kuhn, Gene Kuhn, and they were like, okay, rewrite this. Unfortunately, Mr. Kuhn didn't understand exactly what was requested of him, so he rewrote it in exactly the wrong way, which meant Roddenberry was rewriting it literally while they were filming, which meant that this was a delayed shoot. This was also a location shoot with a large number of guest stars and a decent amount of special effects. They also actually did hire a tiger for the set and an elephant, which, of course, they never used. You know what all this means? This was actually quite an expensive episode um, in basically every way. Between guest stars, location shooting, uh, the animals, the special effects, and the extra day of shooting, yeah, this one hit the, pe the penny, penny bank? The piggy bank. This one hit the piggy bank pretty badly. That's not a good thing when your show is basically in constant threat of cancellation. As has been mentioned by many people, uh, right about now until you know, the end of season one, there was this non-stop tension amongst the, the main creative staff, not the actors, the people actually making the show, that any time a phone call comes in from corporate, it's going to be the news that they were canceled. <sighs> now... I also want to mention that thing about Gene, uh, Mr. Kuhn and how he was rewriting the script. That may not may sound familiar because I've mentioned it before. I'm going to be mentioning it many more times in the future. I don't actually think I have the exact episode number, but that whole rewriting thing is what would directly lead to Gene Kuhn going ahead and walking out and no longer wanting to be involved in the show. Uh... There's some directing issues, too, which I'll talk about later, but, um, yeah, not exactly a fun thing. Where the heck? Here it is. Um, <laughs> Gene, that is to say, Gene Kuhn, had two scripts on his desk in front of him, which he had to rewrite, and he suddenly put his pencil down and said, this is it, and he got up and he walked out. It had been such an all-round-the-clock and a very draining experience. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this is something that was starting to become an issue and would become even more of an issue, basically coming to a head with the episode immediately after this one, Squire of Gothos, in production order, obviously. This is another reason why I'm covering these in production order, because it's, you know, covering the behind-the-scenes perspective. Kuhn was eventually roped back in under contract, which meant that he would do some other stuff, but we'll talk about that more when we get to season two. Either way, you can see how the tension is really starting to get to the people actually making the show. Remember, they were desperate for scripts, right? 
because they were just bringing in more and more people from other shows and other fields to to just God, can you give me a script, give me a script, any script, give me an idea, please. And well, then we get stuff like this. No offense to Mr. Sturgeon, I actually think this is a good script, legitimately. It's a shame that it was so expensive, but that's what happens when you film a holodeck episode. Now, yes, I know the holodeck wouldn't be invented till TAS, as everyone's so fond of pointing out, or Enterprise, depending on how you want to look at that, or TNG, depending on how you want to look at that. But this is structurally a Holodeck Malfunctions episode. It is. And that's fine, really. It's not as cliched or as bad as most Holodeck uh, Malfunction episodes. And it's portrayed better than it usually is over in TNG, so I'll give you a little bit of a pass here. I should also mention uh, Gerald Fried or Freed. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. He did the music for this episode. There's a lot of unique music in this episode. But the point is, he did so much music, new brand new music for this episode that it would then be used and reused constantly. This entered the... So, I've talked many times about the wallpaper music problem, and I stand by my point on that. I think wallpaper music is crap and should never be used unless you really have to save money on the budget somewhere. But it's worth noting that even wallpaper music is custom-crafted. It's just specifically designed to not grab your attention, to be part of the background. With me? That's my whole problem with wallpaper music. It's all of the expense and none of the benefit. Star Trek, the original series, didn't do that. They had individual songs that they would layer under scenes that they felt appropriate for it. Occasionally, they would bring in composers who would write custom music, like for this episode. But then they would have those songs in stock. So they would actually use stock audio of, the, of his music from this episode for a total of 18 episodes after this point, which is a heck of a list, especially in the TOS era. And this is just the norm. Anytime they come in and bring new music, they tend to use it for stock music for future episodes. This is also the first episode, to my knowledge, that introduced William Blackburn to the show. You may know him from being in something like 40 episodes of TOS. He's always a background character, or an alien, or a guy in a suit, or whatever. He's probably most known, he's the guy in The Rabbit, but he's probably most known for being the Gorn. He also does a huge amount of dubbing work. It, you know, that the audio you hear in the background, Oh, we need to get being down a forever. That's usually him. I imagine he was brought in specifically because he was cheap. No offense to the man's talents, he does a good job with what he's got, but he had basically no acting credentials to speak of prior to this, so he probably didn't cost all that much. Uh, this is... Well, I got one other thing to mention here, but let's go ahead and move forward. So... There's a scene that actually made me laugh really hard. Kirk's like, oh, my back hurts. And then the yeoman... Oh, right, I gotta talk about the yeoman. Let's get the laughter part out of the way first. Because the yeoman, who is totally not Rand, reaches down and starts massaging his back. And he's like, oh, that's it, just a little bit higher, just a little bit higher. And my first thought was, damn, a little presumptive, dude. But then he mentions, oh, thank you, Mr. Spock. And then he realizes Spock is standing right next to him, and it's his yeoman running his back. At which point he immediately freezes up and is like... Oh, God, stop. Immediately. That's all. Yeoman. He actually was super not comfortable with his yeoman giving him the back massage. He was okay with Spock doing it. You can take that whatever direction you want. I just find that very interesting and very appropriate. But I have to mention the bad thing. Once again, this was supposed to be Yeoman Rand. Now, it was restructured slightly, and the episode was restructured slightly. 
the yeoman was then attached to McCoy, and Ruth was invented for Kirk. But otherwise, you can see how the pieces, if reshuffled slightly, would fit for this to be Rand, and... Honestly, given what happens later with her being manhandled by Don Juan and her dress literally being ripped and torn, maybe it's better that it wasn't Rand. Just just a thought. For once, I, I can feel free saying that. So there's no animals or people down there. They God, can you imagine the random chance of the fact that they find a planet when they need shore leave and it happens to be this holodeck planet? What are the odds, am I right? And not going to comment on that. So then there's the reference to Alice in Wonderland. Dun, dun, dun. Now, you're probably expecting me to riff on the episode for how ridiculous it is, and you would be very wrong. This episode's actually pretty fun. I have other issues with it, but the episode itself is enjoyable, and I don't really see a problem with just being like... Because that's pretty much the tone of the episode, right? So this then leads to Spock who mentions that when my people rest, we rest. That's actually interesting, because it's either alien or wrong. Take your pick. So here's the thing. You might say, well, resting is good, and you're absolutely right. But the problem is rest encompasses an actually large category of things. Physically sleeping at night or taking a nap or whatever is obviously a thing. Resting yourself and regaining your energy as your body recoups. Okay. But then there's other kinds of rest, like intellectual rest, or emotional rest, or physical rest. Now you're like, well, you just said physical rest. Nah, that was recovering energy. One of the, if you just were super tired and you lay down and you try to get some rest, and then you get up, there's a, if you lay down for too long, you will be more tired than when you laid down. It's 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 a balance thing. You you need to do it in moderation, right? If you are too much physically, you know, saving energy, your body starts to have issues dealing with that. Your body's designed to be in motion, right? Design, you know what I mean. So, exercise can actually be very restful, believe it or not, especially moderated and controlled exercise, especially anything that gets the blood flowing, you know, like a good jog, for example. Um, just, I, I know plenty of people who will tell you, including myself, that one of the biggest cures for a headache is to do a little bit of light jogging or, or otherwise, you know, some kind of aerobic exercise to get the blood flowing, which will help to clear that up. And, of course, that can help rejuvenate you and make you feel more energetic. As contrary as that sound, a good exercise can make you re-energized. This, of course, can also be true in intellectual things. While I'm doing this, it, okay, I don't mean to sound complainy, but this is actually extremely taxing, the floodgate cycle, when I sit down and do these recordings for weeks and weeks on end. I'm to week four right now, and in this particular cycle. And in this, uh, as, as I'm doing this, I need something to intellectually stimulate me. Now, you're probably thinking, but Laura, you're constantly analyzing. Yes, analyzing. I am constantly dissecting and probing, which is just one type of thought over and over and over. So what I do in between is I take a little bit of a break and try to think about something creative. Uh, lately, uh, one of the things I've actually asked some of my people to do is to pop into Discord and ask questions in the Extant channel to, to po posit things that help me to think about my own setting, thus allowing me to be creative, which is rejuvenating and helps to restore my ability to think clearly and properly so I can get back to analyzing and get back to my friggin' job. Right? So you see the idea here. Now, this is why I posit this might just be an alien thing. Maybe the Vulcans, who are superhuman, who are psychic, who have mega brains, and thus will be processing way more calories than we do as humans, 
Maybe they literally don't actually process the same way. Maybe they don't physically interact or have creative thought in order to rejuvenate. Maybe they just need to stop for a while, turn the car off for a bit to save fuel. It's an interesting thought. I'm not actually sure. I just wanted to comment on that. Anyways, moving on. This then leads to probably the best scene in the entire episode, where Spock is like, Sir, there's a, there's a crewman who's under... Reporting, and they're not doing great on their things. Oh, that's unacceptable. Well, he's he's refused, uh, surely. Now, that is his right, of course. Ah, his right ends when it comes to the things of the ship. He must tell me who he is immediately. Um, James Kirk. <laughs> uh, gotcha. I like that. I do like that. And um, Kirk's reaction to that is appropriate. So, okay. Let's go ahead and beam down. There's no technology detected on the planet. I'm curious why exactly, but let's not get into that. There is, however, a rock that lifts to reveal a revolver. As the episode shows, the, the tech of this planet is actually surprisingly low tech. I mean, I know that sounds like a weird thing to say since it's super magic tech, but the point is they've got little literal scanners that literal sc literally scan your brain at points in time, and then they've got little chutes and little hatches which pop up to... You know that the factories down below produce in order to push up to the surface. We see that happen with the samurai. To use another example of this, it's just it's it's weirdly low tech considering the circumstances. I'm not complaining. It's just funny to look at. Anywho, so I'm at the nine minute mark of the episode by this point. I made a note that I had to. I'm really tired of the words beautiful and restful. Because they keep repeating those words over and over up to that point. Everyone, oh, it's so beautiful and it's so restful and it's so beautiful and it's so restful and it's so beautiful and it's so restful. In the voices of several different characters, it took me a while to realize why it was bothering me so much. A rewrite upon a rewrite. Anyone will tell you that a script goes through an average, I think, of about nine revisions, or maybe it's seven. It's one of the odd numbers. Anyway, it's more than six revisions before it gets to a shooting script, the script that's actually handed out to the actors, right? Now, I've talked about this a lot, and this is something I bring up when it comes to analyzing why a particular episode or movie tends to suck. It's because they're at, like, a first, second, or third draft of a script. So you remember me mentioning that this was rewritten by Kuhn and then rewritten on the set, that is to say, on location, by Roddenberry? This is a first draft script, and it shows because there's a lot of repetition of word usages, and there's a lot of repetition and recapping in general. Way too much redundant information to the point where it actually detracts from the episode. I would definitely give this episode a negative ding if I was actually reviewing this, which of course I am not. It's still a fun episode, and it still succeeds in spite of itself, but the script is noticeably weak this time around, and it's obvious why. It's a first draft, so of course it's a weak script. Anyone's first draft script is probably going to be pretty weak, especially one that's being written in a hurry. Anyways, <clears throat> so I don't know if I've mentioned this before. One of the intentions, which I don't know how long they keep doing this, was they wanted there to be a different audio effect for each planet to help just kind of subtly distinguish each planet from the others. That's a cool idea, and I'm completely on board with it, given the limitations of the tech and the time. Uh, we had the chiming flowers for Talos Four, for example, and there's that weird for, I can't remember the name of the planet, here we have the wind chimes, ding, 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 and that's the sound that just plays. How many of you have ever even noticed that? I'm actually quite curious, because it's, it's quiet and in the background, but it's also constant. And again, 
it's designed to give the planet its, well, normally I'd say look, but in this case it's sound, you know, to distinguish it. Just kind of interesting the, the way they try to make things work. Anyways, so then there's this bit where Kirk's like, all right, I'm going to cancel shore leave, and McCoy's like, over this? Uh, yes, McCoy, yes, over this. Are you kidding me? Are you, are you high? Wait, McCoy, are you high? I know it's vacation. <clears throat> then bang, bang, oh my god, there's a gun. No, it's okay, it's okay. It's just Sulu having fun. Well, no judgment. I've been in a range. You know, just shoot targets for fun. I'm with it. This is when they mention some things. They mention no people, no tech, no animals. They've, also, they've said all three of those points before, but then they bring up no insects. That should have been the big warning signal, and I cannot believe it didn't occur to anybody. Well, what happened if you were to Thanos snap all of the insects off of the planet right now? I'll go ahead and tell you, because it would be a lot of very bad things. Most of our foliage and our animals and our ecosystem in general relies on insects in order to keep things moving and flowing and running and processing and all that fun stuff. As much as I hate bugs and would gladly wipe them out of existence if I could, the only way I could ever do that is if I had some completely controlled artificial environment wherein insects are no longer necessary for the other aspects of the ecosystem. Sound familiar? That should have been the first thing that occurs to these guys. They look at the situation and go, wait, there's no insects here. How is there bright and brilliant foliage in all direction? Especially with no animals, which is also a component of that. It's a garden planet with no bugs and no animals. That should have set off multiple alarm bells. What's interesting is it does actually make perfect sense, and it lines up perfectly with what we know. It's just the only flaw here is that nobody in-universe actually noticed this right off the bat. Unfortunately, this is also an aspect of that first draft script thing. You'll notice that most of the characters are really dumb this episode. At about the 20-ish minute mark, the mystery is solved. They flat out state, you know, they, they, they showcase this subtly at first. You know, there's the reference of Alice in Wonderland, and then there's the reference to Finnegan, and then he grabs the flower and he sees Ruth. There, there's little dip, tidbits, but at about the 20-ish minute mark, I didn't actually write down the exact timestamp, please forgive me, all the pieces are now available for both us and the characters to have figured out what's going on. At the absolute latest, you could say at about the 25-minute mark to the 30-minute mark, the characters now know everything they need to know in order to figure out what's going on. They don't. They don't figure it out until about five minutes before the end of the episode because first draft script. Yeah. That could also be a construction of the narrative problem, if I'm being honest. It's entirely possible that that's part of the flaw, too. It's just... It kind of, it's another thing that helps detract from this episode. This, this is a weird one. It's good and bad at the same time for me. Anyways. So, uh, Kirk shows up. There's Finnegan. Lay one on me. I know it's what you want. It's what you want. I mean, he's, just, he's telling them right there. Also, that's Finnegan, who hasn't aged a day in 15 years. Then he meets Ruth, who hasn't aged a day in 15 years. This is a good time to mention something real quick here. Um, first of all, Kirk apparently... I think this is our third... Long lost love for Kirk, something like that. I'm, I'm not sure what we're up to at this point. Next thing to point out, though, is that Kirk uh, doesn't seem to think anything is unusual about Ruth, who hasn't aged a day, and Finnegan, who hasn't aged a day, just kind of showing up. He just He's just totally enraptured by both. Why? Is it because he's that out of it? Well, I know he needs shore leave, but jeez. Um, interesting little sidebar here. Kirk is 33 as of this episode. I looked it up. 
he was born 33 years. He's 33 or 34. Uh, he because I'm not sure of the exact date of the episode. He was born in I think March, but anyways, he is roughly 33 as of this episode in universe. He mentions that he hasn't seen Finnegan or her in 15 years. That would put him at 18. He also mentions she hasn't aged a day. No judgment. I like older women. Just think about that for a minute. So, McCoy then hits on not Rand. I think her name is Barrows. Esteban and Teller show up. Oh, by the way, this is a weird thing to mention. Teller? Angela Teller? That's the woman from Balance of Terror. The one who was engaged and was getting married. Now, this is actually kind of funny to think about, because she was engaged, and then he dies, and now she's crushing on Esteban. Um, allow me to go ahead and say what the crap to that, but here's the catch. That episode was, I think, nine episodes? Hang on, I have the wrong reference in front of me. It was several episodes before this, in production order. So there has been a gap of time, and her moving on is not exactly completely out of bounds, especially since what she's doing is just light flirting with Esteban. Okay. What makes this funny is in air date order, this episode was immediately after Balance of Terror. So, oh, my fiancé is dead. Ooh, he's hot, is basically how it was presented when it was coming live. Ha uh ha. -huh. Uh, this is the second time, by the way, that Star Trek mentions the idea that Kirk was a super serious, super driven, you know, by-the-books bookworm back in class. This is interesting considering Kirk and all the mentalities we've built up for him and the idea of him constantly bending or breaking the rules. But it makes sense to explain why he is so driven and why he was the kind of person who climbed his way up the ranks faster than anyone else had up to that point in time. It also... It's really interesting to think about because I was going to make this comment about the Abrams Kirk. But then I realized that Abrams Kirk is... Well, I mean, obviously it's a different Kirk, but my point is, basically everything about him is different. I mean, he was... <sighs> the person that was going to be born is the same person, roughly speaking, because his mother was already pregnant when the time alteration occurred. So, the only thing that changed was the pregnancy got shuffled forward a little bit, and he was now raised under completely separate circumstances. So his upbringing is completely different, even if the biological Kirk is the same. Sounds back. So a lot of the tra traits of Kirk are there, rough and crude, but the Kirk and the Abrams things is a punk who's an idiot, and that's interesting to contrast the extremely serious bookworm, super on top of things, super rigid, you know, the pile of books with legs, I think is what Mitchell called them, something like that. It's just interesting to think of the contrast there. Anyways. <clears throat> so, ah, where am I at? Why is there an energy drain? This is the weirdest part of the episode and serves no purpose other than to prevent people from communicating each other, but there's no point in preventing them from communicating. No nothing narratively is benefited by the fact that they can no longer use the communicators. The only real benefit is the phasers don't work, and that's easy enough to explain in several other ways. Like, <laughs> they even mention that there's a power drain, which is draining the communicators and the ship and the phasers. Not the tricorders, though. The tricorder works just fine, although apparently Sulu just can't be trusted with it, because Kirk demands that Spock comes over and use Sulu's tricorder, which is various levels of insulting. It is only at this point that we start to theorize what's going on. Oh, by the way, McCoy does. Actually, I do have something interesting to say about that, and it's probably one of the better parts of the episode. 
Boy, that sounds morbid. Let me explain. McCoy's whole shtick so far has been lighthearted and silly and fun. Right? Whatever you imagine, whether pleasant or deadly, comes into being. But most of what most people have been imagining has been deadly to some extent or another. There's been a couple of exceptions, but, you know, we've got the tiger, we've got the gun, we've got the knight who attacks, we've got Don Juan, we've got the airplanes. Yes, there are two of them, and they also change which one it is because it's stock footage. Right? What does McCoy envision? Alice in Wonderland, and later some cabaret girls. And he mostly spends his time trying to comfort Rand, I mean Barrows, and hitting on her. As a quick aside, I think that McCoy would be a much better romantic pairing there. But then again, as I've pointed out before, and will continue to point out, McCoy definitely plays the field. No judgment, he's rather attractive, especially for his age, and very smart, and he's got surgeon's hands. So as Dax will tell you, any experiences there will probably be quite pleasant. All joking aside, though, he's he's flirting with her, and there's lightness, and there's lighthearted, and of course he is the one to die. Not any of the people actually in danger. Him. That's good. That's good juxtaposition. The one person who has been consistently not in danger is the first one to die to prove things are serious. I like that. That's what I like about that. Of course, he's fine. They go and repair him. Sure. Then Sulu, uh, the Sulu is a tricator, tricorder. Angela dies. Oh no, she dies. And then she's not seen for the rest of the episode. Uh, there was a scene in the script that was supposed to be shot, which of course they were having so many issues, it's no surprise they didn't, which showed that she also comes back and she is also fine. So don't worry. She didn't follow her fiance. Although that would be just horrific, wouldn't it? Her fiance dies in the middle of fighting a deadly conflict with the Romulans and she dies on a pleasure planet to a biplane that shoots her on a strafing run. Just not not great side by side there. Anyways, <clears throat> she's never seen again in the series, so I suppose we can presume that she did in fact die, so yay! But this then leads to the big fight with Finnegan, because we got to have a fist fight, otherwise we just can't sell this to people. I mean, why would anyone watch Star Trek for anything other than fist fights, am I right? It's actually a decent fist fight. It reminds me of something. I wish we had more of this in the rest of Trek. I know that sounds weird, but do hear me out for a second. One of the things I've made fun of consistently ever since I started covering Voyager all the way back in the day, like... God, like eight years ago now. Has it really been that long? Was the the, the typical Star Trek maneuvers. You know, you've got the... And then the... And then the... And then there's the one into the midsection... And I, I actually talked in TNG about how that was a style that was developed by a choreographer. I forget his name right now, but I mentioned that. It was a style that they carried forward to be the futuristic fighting, and they just kind of kept using it. In this episode, Kirk and Finnegan, or rather their, their doubles, just, just beat the crap out of each other. And there's something weirdly refreshing about that. I'm not, I'm not saying everything needs to be just a slug-out brawl, but it would be nice to see something other than the Trek standard... You know, it is it is weirdly refreshing. Anyways, anyways. So then, uh, we there's a nice little bit, by the way. The editor supposedly did this. Was not able to find a citation on this in any of my books. Um, that the editor wanted to have a thing where Finnegan kind of teleports around a bit. And you can kind of see it if you watch the episode. It seems like he's just bouncing around inhumanly, which would make a degree of sense until you realize he's basically a robot. Maybe he's using the tunnels. Maybe they have transporters and they just don't talk about them. I don't freaking know. What I do know is that after beating the crap out of Finnegan, he was rather satisfied by that. 
because not everyone's enjoyment is the same as anyone else's. Allow me to go ahead and formally say that this is probably the best Ryza planet I've ever seen. The rest Ryza episode. Because in Captain's Holiday, bleh. And then in uh, Let He Who Is Without Sin, bleh. And then we had Two Days and Two Nights, which actually was okay, but had its own issues. But then we have this episode. And it's nice to see different people having different interests. And You'll notice of the seven, seven people who beam down, two of them want sex as their recreation. And no judgment. If you want to just go screw when you're on vacation, go for it. In fact, they had, uh, they had that in the Enterprise Ryzen episode as well. No judgment. It's just it's nice to see people focusing on something other than sex when it comes to relaxing on a pleasure planet, right? To go back to what I mentioned earlier, sex is a hell of a workout, at least if you're doing it properly. And so that can, uh, that can also be rejuvenating. It can also be very exhausting, depending on you know, where you're at and what you're going with. So, you know, might be a good rest, might not. <clears throat> Either way, the episode then rounds out. We meet the caretaker. No, not that one. And then the episode keeps going for some weird reason. Like, the episode is clearly done, and then it keeps going, and then it's clearly done, and then it keeps going, and then we get to the bridge, and it's like, why is this episode still going? Oh, that's right, we have to have the sitcom ending. The wah-wah, as I call it. This is probably the most clear-cut, definitive example of a wah-wah I've seen so far, because it's not even a joke. It's just nonsense and stupid. Everyone comes up, Spock says, everyone rested? They say, yeah. Yeah. Very well rested. Awkward pause. Most illogical. <laughs> Fake laughter. Fake laughter for about ten seconds. And then War Factor 1. God, I hated that about TOS. Even in otherwise decent episodes, I hate that crap. It doesn't even make sense. What's illogical about wanting to get rest? What's illogical about using what is the equivalent of a holodeck to rest in multiple different ways? <sighs> I, I, I got nothing. I, the best I got is the fact that it's a callback to the idea that you would exercise in order to rest, which, as I pointed out, is a physiological fact, one that Spock should probably be aware of. Whatever. The episode is done better than it could have been, worse than I would have enjoyed. The seams are starting to show from the production angle. I'm going to keep commenting on that as we go through, because it's going to very much lead into the big changeover between Season 1 and Season 2. For now... I will see you next time.